Turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 11 through 18. 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this sovereign love, this prevailing and enduring love. We uh, are lost without it. We know that we can love because you first loved us. And even as we look at the passage in front of us today, it really gives to us the application of because of this sovereign love you've demonstrated to us, we are to go in turn and, and do likewise. Help us to love one another as the passage uh, instructs us to do today. Help us to grow in this area in Christ's name. Amen. The apologist Francis Schaeffer wrote one time this, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks on the lapels of their coats, hung chains around their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this, <coughs> if one feels it's his calling, but there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up as just a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus Christ comes back. What is this mark, Schaefer asks. He continues and says this, At the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, and the ascension. Knowing that he is about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. And then Schaefer quotes from John 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love for one another." This passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one area or in one locality, but in all times and all places until Jesus returns. We're looking today at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and I hope to encourage us to adopt an understanding of love that is radically different than this world understands it to be. We're going to use uh, the following outline today. Uh, I, we did pass out some of those, uh, so hopefully that is helpful to kind of give you an idea of where we're going. Uh, but we have the message stated, illustrated, evidence, defined, and applied. Let's go ahead and read this passage in front of us. First John Chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Today's passage is really every perfectionist's dream come true, at least in 1 John. Because as we've talked about, 1 John, he doesn't tend to follow any rigid structural outlines. Uh, he kind of goes in this circle. And just when you think he's done with the topic, he, just, he circles around and comes back to this topic again and again and again. And so someone who is trying to organize 1 John sometimes may have a very difficult time and just kind of be frustrated that it doesn't lend itself to an easy outline. Uh, and that's okay because God did not write this book intending to please any one person. He wrote it to please himself, and he wrote it in a way that brings honor to himself. Uh, but in, at any rate, uh, this one is kind of straightforward today. He just gives a message, and he states the message. He uh, defines it. He illustrates it. He evidences it. He applies it. He does all these things, and it's just simply all of this passage is circulating around this one command that's given in verse 11. He works sequentially through this. The message clearly stated in verse 11 is simply three English words, love one another. Okay, There are a number of passages in the New Testament that give to us the one another's. How are we to interact and engage with one another. We are. We're not to be isolated, but to have a certain view of how we're to function as a body. And this one simply is to love one another. Everything else in the passage is supporting, expanding upon, illustrating, applying this one command. So if you want to know what this passage is about, it's simply about the command, love one another. Let's look at this verse here. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, there's a couple of observations to make here at the outset. Uh, One of them is that John begins this section by saying, for this message is from, or you have heard it from the beginning, a phrase that John likes to use in other places. In other words, what he's saying here is that this command to love is nothing new, it's nothing unique. This is not something I'm just throwing upon you at the last second. This has been with us as Christians from the very beginning. Even going all the way back into the Old Testament, consider Leviticus, for instance, 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the message you've had from the beginning. He's saying, we're going to review some things here. We're not going to throw anything new on you. We're just going to review what we've had from the very beginning, and that is that God's people have always been defined by their love for others. Think the Good Samaritan. Always been defined that way. So that's kind of the first observation. But second to to note here at the outset is that this command to love one another is um, the foremost, we alluded to this in in the introduction, the foremost illustration or evidence of our conversion to a lost and dying world. Okay? Some people might want to wear a certain necklace or have a certain mark of what it means to be a Christian, and those things tend to come and they, and they go. But the, the mark that has been set down by the Lord Jesus Christ for all times and all places is that people would know us by this marker, and that is our love for 
one another. Again, John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now sometimes it's interesting to take these and just kind of work out a little bit what he does not say, okay? Jesus did not say, by this will all people know that you're my disciples, by the depth of your theological knowledge. Not disparaging this. In fact, we're encouraging this. Um, But this is not the mark that Jesus gave. He did not say, by this all people will know you're my disciples, by how many degrees you have. He did not say, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, by how well you can dunk on the atheists and win in an argument against them. He did not say, by this all people will know you're my disciples, by how well you expose the contradictions of others. Oh, look at how great of an apologist I am, and I can expose all of your contradictions and show how foolish you really are. He did not say, by this will all people know you're my disciples, by how sacrificial you are. What did he say? By this all people will know you're my disciples, if you have love. You have love. Love is the central mark, it is the central indicator, it is the central attribute of the Christian as a witness to a lost and dying world. Oh, they must be a Christian because of how they are loving others. And this is why, in part, I think this message of love is repeated by John again and again and again and again. You must love one another. Okay? So, yes, even that person that comes to your mind right now that you say, isn't there, exclude that person, right? The caveat around this person. So what John is going to do now, in order to help us understand this a little bit better, he's going to illustrate what this looks like, or actually, more accurately, he's going to illustrate what this doesn't look like, okay? And that's where we see in verses 12 through 13. The alternative to this biblical uh, Christian kind of love is uh, to be like Cain. Now, Cain was of the seed of Satan, the offspring of the devil. 1 John 3, spiritually speaking, 1 John 3, 12 through 13, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, the primary admonition in this this section of Scripture, these two verses, is don't be like Cain. Okay? Verse 11, love one another. 12 and 13, don't be like Cain. So when we're talking about love, we're saying this is the opposite of that. Uh, Remember that there are only two groups of people here on planet Earth. Those who are the seed of Satan, as we see here, and those who are the seed of Christ. You guys with me today? (laughs) Those are the seed of Satan and those who are the seed of Christ. There's only two groups. There's no middle uh, ground. There's no fence. There's, There's none of that kind of a thing. It's just simply here or here. And the difference really is crystal clear. So how can I de- detect the difference between the seed of Satan and the seed of Christ? How do I know what the difference is? Well, those who are of Christ's seed, Christ's children, they love others. And those who are of Satan's seed or Satan's children, they hate others. It's probably a good time to pause and ask the question, which camp are you part of? Okay, which group are you 
in here when it comes to this. Matthew chapter 7, um, I think I've referenced this passage so many times in 1 John that it's almost becoming a theme verse from outside of the book of John, of 1 John, for this book. But, but it continues to come up again and again. Matthew seven seventeen through 20. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. Uh, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Uh, Cain was of the seed of Satan. He had those kinds of roots in his life. And so Cain could not help but produce evil fruit. This is the state of the unconverted soul, right? The, the, the unbeliever cannot help but uh, live out his fleshly desires. It's, his, it's the root, and it produces this kind of a, a fruit. Because Cain was of the evil one, he murdered his brother. Why? Because of jealousy. Cain saw the good fruit of his brother. He saw that God ac- accepted Abel's sacrifice. He saw his brother's good and righteous deeds. And because he was of Satan, he became jealous, resentful, He hated and despised the righteous works of his brother, and so he killed them. Such is the way of Satan's children. John 8, 44. We saw this uh, two weeks ago. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Offspring of Satan in a spiritual sense. In the same way, the world also hates righteousness, and the world hates Christians. This is verse 13. Don't be surprised then, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, this verse seems a little bit out of place, and I think it is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it is connected to verse 12 of Cain murdering his brother. John is saying this, essentially. Hey, you guys, you need to love one another. Now, don't be like Cain, by the way. Who, uh, who, who didn't love, but hated and murdered, and oh, by the way, in the same way, the world's going to hate and murder you. Kind of the, the flow of thought here. There is almost, in a sense, I think, uh, you, you can almost identify a foreshadowing here in the Cain and Abel situation. Um, in, in a sense, you could see uh, Satan's children of all ages really represented by Cain, And in a sense, you can see God's children represented by Abel here, and Satan's children are just constantly persecuting, hating, and murdering God's children. This is just the story of life. This is history, uh, that, that, that God's children are continually persecuted and hated throughout all of church history. Now, we are warned not to be like this, Because if you are like this, it is indicative of some really bad news, which is disclosed to us in 14 through 15. What is this bad news? 1 John 3, 14 through 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because... What does he say is the indicator here? You want, you want to know if you've passed out of death into life? You want to know if you're a believer, if you're regenerated? You want to know if you're a Christian? We know 
that this has happened because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the, the, the stakes are high in this situation here. This is not a smorgasbord of options. Well, if you want to be a loving Christian, go ahead and take that if that suits you. And if you want to be the hateful Christian, take that if that suits you. You know, either way, at the end of the day, at least you're saved and this kind of... This is not what this is. This is so central to what it means to be a Christian, so central to the definition of what a Christian is, that if you do not have this kind of love, you are not a Christian, and you are engaging in self-deception. Going back to the Matthew 7 passage, consider this. Imagine seeing a tree produce apples, and then someone comes along and insists, that's a cherry tree. You say, it is so obvious that it's painful to argue with someone who's stubborn in this way. What does Chesterton say? Something like, uh, good societies fail when they forget obvious things. <laughs> There's a lot of obvious things that we've forgotten in, in, in our culture today. And that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's so obvious that this is an apple tree that, what, what are you talking about? In the same way, if you are a child of God, then you have the kind of roots that will produce fruit that looks a whole lot like love. You will. And if you are a child of Satan, you will have the kind of roots that produce fruit that looks a whole lot like hatred and murder. The roots change everything that's, that's going on. You know, we had some fruit trees uh, a couple of years ago, and I learned in this process that they graft uh, different rootstocks onto different trees. So you can have a tree that's a full-size tree, and if they want the tree to be a dwarf tree, uh, there's not like a separate dwarf tree. You just graft a different kind of root onto that standard-sized tree, and it will force that tree to only grow to uh, a certain size. The roots actually affect what's going on with the tree, with, with, with the fruit. And it's producing something here. And that's the same way with us as Christians. You cannot say, I have Christian roots, but I am just producing satanic fruit. It's an impossibility. It is not possible for us as Christians. That's why First John again and again is saying, look at the fruit, look at the fruit, look at the fruit. Because it's going to indicate what is going on at that foundational root level. Throughout 1 John, we've seen time and time again that John is concerned about uh, providing fruit as the evidence of conversion. How do you know that you are really a child of God? How do you know? And the answer has always been throughout 1 John essentially this. If you are a child of God, then you will produce fruit consistent with Christianity, consistent with someone living underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. One of those fruits, or perhaps the foremost fruit, is that you love others. Okay, now we've talked about this again, and I'll say this for the sake of uh, maybe those who have not 
heard all of the, the previous message up till uh, today. And that is, John starts off this letter by saying, you are going to sin. And if anyone claims that he does not sin, he's a liar. Okay? So we understand that we are going to do things that are sinful. But the, cons- the, the, the fruit, the Christ-like fruit, is that when we do that, we despise it in our own hearts. And we hate it. And we repent of it. Uh, pastor, a friend of mine, um, kind of a, a play on the whole once saved, always saved, says once uh, regenerated, always repenting. And there's truth in this as a Christian is that, yes, we are going to continue to sin in little moments here and there, but the lifestyle of the Christian, the fruit that's growing in our own souls is a, a growth in repentance, continuing to repent. How do I know I repented back then? Well, I'm continuing to repent now. Um, and it's a hatred for my sin, and it's a growing in sanctification. I'm not what I was 10 years ago. And that's the fruit uh, of, of a Christian. He makes this clear here that this is the fruit of a Christian. Look at verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know this. And then he makes a very clear correlation that Jesus makes. He says, if you hate your brother, you are a what? A murderer. Jesus makes this connection in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that, by the way, um, But I say to you, that's a statement of authority right here. Jesus is claiming authority. Um, Some people will look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, why can't we just take the Sermon on the Mount as just a template? It doesn't have to be theological. It doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be connected to Christ. These are just good rules for society. Jesus makes this an issue of theology and authority when he says, but I say to you, I have authority to tell you these things. I am the one who's in charge here. Thus, all ethics are connected to theology. You can't ever divorce those things and have a neutral pattern to say, as society, let's just adopt these Christian values without attributing them to Christ. No, it's all connected. We want to declare in every category of life to our society, to our community, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is what our command or our, our central um, messages. He is Lord and you must submit to him. So he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see how he makes that connection here? You shouldn't murder, but I'm saying if you're even angry with him, if you hate him. And that's exactly what's going on in 1 John 3. Look at verse 15 of 1 John 3. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You see, Jesus is saying this. John is saying this. And he goes on to say, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Murderers uh, are unbelievers. And in addition to this, brother-haters are unbelievers. See what he's saying here? If you consistently, regularly just hate the brethren, then you're not even a part of the family of God. You're not even in the family. If If you're unrepentantly 
continuously just demonstrating hatred for these people, then that's evidence that you're like Cain. I cannot emphasize this point enough. What comes into your heart when you think of other professing believers? Do you despise them in your heart? Do you mumble and grumble against them? Or is your heart flooded with patience and long-suffering and love and grace and mercy? Don't think about some... Don't, this is not a, I hope so-and-so is listening to this message today. This is I hope you're listening to this message today. I hope I, this is a, what's going on in my heart. Where do you stand? Do you love the brethren? Look at your heart. What do you mean by love? Well, fortunately, the passage tells us this because we have the message defined. We have all these different attributes about this message, and that's given to us in verse 16. By this we know love, uh, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Somewhere in here. There it is. He is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. So, if you were to say, can you define love for me? You have to have a standard of that, right? If you were to say, I need to measure 15 and a half feet on this floor, okay? You have to have a measuring tape or a measuring wheel or something that's a standard that you can measure it against. You can't provide that 15 and a half foot mark in uh, isolated and just arbitrarily declare that this is 15 and a half feet. You have to measure it against something else. In the same way, you cannot arbitrarily declare, well, to me, love means this. Or you can't absorb what the world thinks love is. The world generally thinks of love in terms of affirmation today. Uh, anyone who affirms someone else is loving, and anyone who does not affirm someone else is unloving. That's how the world typically thinks about it today. But what we're saying is in order to understand what love means, we're going to have to measure it against a standard outside of anything that you or I can think of. And that standard, of course, is who? Jesus Christ. It's a person. Okay. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. Uh, so, so we're looking at this, at least in this verse, in terms of sacrifice. Uh, if, a, if a Christian looks at someone in the world and says, that lifestyle is rebellion against Jesus Christ, and that lifestyle is a sin, the world will oftentimes respond with a variation of this. Wait a second, I thought you were a Christian. Didn't Jesus say something about loving people? Aren't you supposed to love people? There's something wrong in that accusation, in the foundation of it, that it's misunderstanding the very definition of love itself. Misunderstanding what Jesus has called us to do. In fact, if you, you look at the entire life of Jesus, and he is constantly not affirming people. <laughs> He's constantly saying... You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's sin. You're, and he's constantly doing all these things. 
Uh, some unbelievers like to play pick and choose with the commands of Christ. And yet we want to take the whole counsel of God into consideration here. And so we define it against this standard. Um, He gives to us a positive declaration of love. This one's not as much of a negative one as much as a positive one. Love looks a lot like sacrifice. Jesus, as verse 16 says, laid down his life for us. And then he just simply says, essentially, go and do likewise. This is what Jesus did. He was willing to sacrifice his very life. Therefore, you go and do the very same thing. We should lay down our lives for the brothers. Think think about that for a moment, actually. Do you love the people that you're sitting next to in this room right now so much that you would be willing to physically die for them? Do you have, is it, is it at that, are we talking at that level? We, we need to sacrifice for one another. And, 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 and sometimes we get the whole, you know, uh, brainstorming in our minds about how we're going to be a superhero and sacrifice our lives for someone and our lives will be taken for them. And yet we're not willing to do the sacrificial daily things, right? Just the small little things. I'd, I'd sacrifice in a big way, but not... We are called to just be self-giving as Christians. I mean, get past the whole, this is my life and I get to call the shots here, okay? You don't. You're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He calls the shots. He says, you sacrifice. End of story. There's no, there's no discussion here. There's no committee. Uh, there's no bureaucracy here. This is not democracy. This is Christ is Lord, and he says, do this, and that's what you do. Um, you don't have the right to call the shots in your own life, even. Are you willing to die for others? Love is more than just warm fuzzies, okay? Uh, Love has feet. It has practical application to it, which is very different from the world's love. Now, there's a test given in the passage to see, do you have, we've defined it now, but here... Do you really have this kind of love? And he gives that to us in 17 through 18 with the application of this message. In 17 through 18, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. Okay, so 17 to 18, here's a basic meaning. If you have the means to help a brother, let's say, for example, financially, someone who's in need, and you don't help them, are you even a Christian? That's what it's saying. He just defined love in terms of self-sacrifice. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a litmus test. Do you give to others when they have needs? Or not? Or are you stingy? <clears throat> Your love, as the passage says, is to be more than just word and talk, but in deed and in truth. You may want to write down James one twenty two in the margins next to that verse. This one's probably a little more familiar, but you all know James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Okay, Christianity is not 
a ivory tower theologian religion where we just all sit around a table and just talk about theoretical things. There is a learning and an understanding and a, a diligent study that is involved in here, but it's not to end there. It's actually to impact the world and change the world. You're actually supposed to, believe it or not, as shocking as this may be, you're to conform your life to what this says. We, I, I don't come here because I like to just hear myself talk, okay? Hopefully you, <laughs> you don't. We all talk and have our little powwow and this would be great and this would be wonderful and the world should really, and then we go on and do what we want. You're actually supposed to walk out of those doors and change what you're doing because of what this says. That's what this, that's what this passage is saying. You want to know if you're in the faith? Is there a difference? Has anything changed because of your profession to believe in Jesus Christ? Are you giving to the needs of others? Are you living out your Christian life in the context of community? Uh, now, I, I, I want to say something on this point in particular. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll open this up to feedback. Uh, everything's open to feed. To feed but I, I would like some... We went through Amos, and we talked a little bit about uh, the oppression that God was um, condemning his people for, and, and we said one of the ways that that's happening in our culture today is sex trafficking, and um, so we had a representative come in today to discuss that and see, is there anything that we could do to potentially uh, put boots on the ground and minister to this, uh, these people and pull them out of this uh, lifestyle? And in the same way, I, I mean, I... I be happy to hear um, feedback on this. I think one of the negative um, influences of Enlightenment thinking was kind of a uh, the push to a wandering, isolated, rugged individualism of just this every man is an island kind of a thing. And actually, uh, those of you who were on the men's camp out this weekend, we actually talked a little bit about this problem. We are a very isolated, individualized, fractured, and aimless society. We have no cohesion. Nothing holds us together anymore. Not even our values. We don't even have shared values with our next door neighbors anymore. There's just completely everyone is going. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, And not only are we fractured on that societal level, we're fractured on a family level. Families going in different directions uh, in their ideology, in their values. And actually, I think probably I got the order reversed. Society is fractured because the families are fractured. And it's just worked its way out into the culture around us. Um, you know, probably the most extreme example of this is kind of the, the modern tendency for everyone to go in their homes and go into their bedrooms and close their doors and get on their phones and just be isolated continuously from everyone else. Uh, If that's you, by the way, that's a problem that you need to change, okay? Um, I would like for our local church to do better in this, actually. And I would like us to think through doing discipleship better than we're doing now. The problem that I'm addressing here, I would like to call 
uh, and term the erosion of the front porch, okay? Um, th- th- we have retreated into ourselves as a society. Uh, we need to better lean in and support one another, to better minister to one another, and to not go through these battles alone. There's a church for a reason. There's a community of local believers here. These are your brothers and your sisters, okay? That, that there is to be a certain cohesion that exists here. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, as you're thinking through some of those things, uh, let's start with what we know, and that is what the text tells us. If someone is in need, you help them. This involves financial giving, but not always. Sometimes it's helping someone working through a project at their home or even loading a moving truck or any number of things like that. Those things are good. Obviously, we understand there's important spiritual things as well, um, but just all kinds of things where we are living out in the context of just loving one another as a church. So where do we go uh, from here? Okay. Um, I'm going to say... a couple of things here that may chafe a little bit, but uh, I won't apologize, so that's okay. Uh, sometimes it's easy to talk about the disarray of everything around us in culture and in society and in churches and in people's lives. And sometimes it's easy for us to talk about that disarray when we don't have our own homes in order. And we can go on and we can talk about all of the threats to society and to culture, which are very real threats. We can talk about antinomianism and legalism and false teaching and uh, effeminate men and critical theory and apologetics and inconsistency. But if you have no self-control in your own life, You're just part of the problem. Um, Any of you who have been here for more than like one week knows that I'm not disparaging theology, okay? Uh, I want our church to be built on a very firm foundation of a robust knowledge of God, his character, his attributes, who he is, good, sound doctrine. There are more commands in the New Testament probably than any other command about getting sound doctrine right. Okay. All of that is necessary. Sound doctrine, good theology, rigorous study, Bible teaching. And I am not minimizing that by a fraction of an inch at all. But if you have all of that and you don't have love, you have nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. You have nothing. Satan is a better theologian than any man walking on the planet right now. He's been around long enough, and he knows God enough, and yet he's where he is. We're starting to hit now on a theme that I've sought to emphasize here at Crossview Church from day number one, and that is this. It is easy to point our fingers at all the problems out there 
It's very hard to be honest about all the problems that are in here. Very hard. Um, We sometimes become self-deceived. And I I think that sometimes uh, constant complaining about everybody else's problems is just a strategy of self-deception that helps us to bypass the very difficult work of growing in our own sanctification. Oh, look at what they're doing. Oh, look at this. This is horrible. Oh, look at this. They're, they're, oh, their theology is wrong. I better correct them. I better fix them. I better is. And meanwhile, we're in shambles. Now, I'm not saying get rid of the good theology and the discernment. I'm saying just have the whole thing, okay? You need to get serious about your own sanctification. Not in your own strength. This is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps message, a legalistic kind of a thing. I'm not saying do this in your own strength. You need the grace that is provided solely in, by Jesus Christ. Okay? You cannot do this without Jesus Christ. You cannot. I'm saying bring self-discipline in your life. Leave the chaos behind. Bring order into your own home. Get it right there. Do that, and the rest will follow after that. If we don't have good homes, we can't have good society, okay? And I'm not saying that our mission is to reform society at all. But Christ has told us how we're supposed to live our lives. And he said, if you want to know you're a Christian, do you love others? That's just, this is very elementary. This is like, let's just get that, okay? Let's love one another. This is the primary thing we need to look after in this passage is love for others. Okay. Uh, Application number one, pursue genuine Christ-like love for others. Obviously from the passage. Number two, evaluate your own life for the presence or absence of love. If you hate your brothers, then repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. If you... You could put parentheses in there. If you hate your brothers, a.k.a. you're an unbeliever then repent and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Number three, look for ways to sacrifice for others who are in need. We should be eager to do this, by the way. Number four, think of ways that we uh, forsake individualism and can do community better as a church. How can we better sacrifice for those in our own church? Thank you, God, for your continued faithfulness to us. We thank you for the gospel and just pray that you'd help continue to sanctify us and honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.